This is the Business Storytelling Show with Christoph Trapp. Name a top 20 storytelling podcast and a top 5% podcast globally, Christoph chats with thought leaders and experts to share tips and tricks that can help you tell your company's stories better to drive business results. Available wherever you listen to podcasts, live streamed on major social media channels, and part of the DB&A television network, available on most U.S. television sets and streaming on Roku and Amazon Fire. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Let's go. Let's go, business storytellers. Hey, how's everyone doing? Now, uh, we need to make some updates to that intro, by the way. Uh, DBNA Television Network was just recently picked up uh, by, I think, 70 television stations around the globe. We'll share um, that list at some point here when we get it, but it was just announced uh, last week or two weeks ago, something like that. So that's fantastic. Directly broadcasting on those television networks around the world. And of course, still available here on Roku and Amazon Fire um, in the United States. So check it out if you're not watching there already. Today, we're also live on Amazon because we are talking about a book, Brand Naming. Rob Meyerson is the author of that book. Um, and you know, basically, we have an author chat about why is brand naming so difficult? And you know what? How do people come up with these crappy names? There is, you know, there's a company. We're not going to name who it is. They have a decent name. I don't really care what their name is, but it's it's fine. Their product is awesome. And now they're changing it to some crazy name that my seven-year-old wouldn't have even come up with. So why is it so difficult? How do people come up with names for companies? And, you know, what goes into a good brand name? Welcome to the show, Rob Meyerson. Thanks so much, Christoph. Oh, that we're in our fist pump. Some days that's harder than others. Uh, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, thank you for sending a copy of the book ahead of time. Really enjoyed reading it and, and certainly learned a lot. Um, tell us, why is coming up with a name so important? And why do companies struggle with it? Yeah, I'd say the first reason it's important is, is what you said earlier, that it's difficult. Um, now, that may sound a little uh, circular, but uh, it's important to get it right, uh, partly because so much can go wrong and the costs can be so high if, if something goes wrong. So uh, in addition to just coming up with a name that nobody likes or, or something like that, the, the real concerns that I have as a professional namer are, is the name legally available or is it going to cause this company uh, to be sued or have legal difficulties? Are there linguistic issues with it? Um, does it mean something bad in another language? Or you know, will it be ridiculed in, in some country because it sounds similar to something else? Um, because it's so hard and because it can backfire, uh, which can have real commercial implications, it can cost a lot of money to require someone to rebrand um, and run new ads explaining why the name has changed. Um, because of that, it's, it's important, I would say. Um, a couple of other reasons. Language is really powerful, um, so it's a it's a business's opportunity to harness that that power of language and and uh, explain something about the company or the product or just build buzz, get people interested and excited about that brand. Um, so so that's uh, the second reason, and then the last I'd say is just that it, it lasts for the length of the company generally. So if you think as a marketer, you're always doing things, you're coming up with ads, you're maybe you're redesigning the logo or the website. 
but the name is pretty much one and done. You come up with that when you start your company or when you launch your product uh, shortly before those things actually. And then, uh, and then it sticks. Hopefully if nothing goes wrong, it stays for the length of the life of that company or product. What's interesting about that comment, hopefully it sticks until the length and, and uh, lifetime of that product. Um, yes, that's the hope, right? But I had two examples actually come to mind as you were talking about that. And one is my credit union, which used to be the University of Iowa Credit Union. And now it's the Green State Credit Union, one of the credit unions here in town. And I'm like, and everybody's like, what kind of name is that? And, you know, I, I don't really get it either. But at the end of the day, like, I don't, I don't know that I even care, right? In fact, I still call it UICCU if I ever mention it. Which is which they haven't been for I don't know three years now four years maybe five years, and then the other example that comes to mind is the local media company uh, for for which I used to work, and they used to be the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and then they rebranded. Get this, in like 1998, to the Gazette. To this day, 2022, people are still calling them the Cedar Rapids Gazette, whether. They're, that's not what they're called and nobody cares right so right. is that just an example of how important it is to have a name that will stand the test of time yeah i would say both of those examples are what i would call very descriptive names there are a lot of different kinds of brand names some of them uh don't make a lot of sense at least on the face of, of the name something like google or calling a computer company apple it, it, there's not an immediate like, why, why would you do that? Whereas Cedar Rapids Gazette, uh, you know, it, it's clear that we've called it Cedar Rapids because it's based in Cedar Rapids or it has news around the Cedar Rapids area. But those are very descriptive names. And those kinds of names, especially for companies, uh, can be a little dangerous because they're rigid and they can pigeonhole you. And so I often see companies after if they've been successful with a name like that, they often try to change it and shed that type description of where they're from or what kinds of products they sell or, or something like that. Uh, Pizza Hut is a, a good example of a global brand uh, that has a descriptive name. It says what they sell you right in the name. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, except that the, the Pizza Hut company really wanted, and I think still wants to be known for not just pizza, but uh, they have salads, they have wings, they have pasta, these other things on their menu. And they've worried over the years from time to time that they're losing customers who think, I don't want to go there because I don't want pizza. And they don't really know or don't think about the fact that they can get so many other things at Pizza Hut. And so they've tried to rebrand in a very similar way to the examples you gave. They've tried to drop pizza out of the name and just be the hut. But it didn't really work. It didn't stick. And they've reverted back to Pizza Hut. Um, so it sounds like uh, similar thinking from, from the Gazette and the other example you gave. And you're right, these name changes sometimes uh, can be very hard for, for consumers to, uh, to get used to. I'm still calling Kinko's Kinko's, even though it's been FedEx office uh, for a decade or something like that. It's just, it's hard sometimes to, uh, to switch to the new name. I mean, total, totally is. And I actually, I'm not sure I've ever heard of the HUD. I'm not even sure I've ever heard of that. Yeah. Um, at all. And I totally believe that <laughs> that Pizza Hut only offers pizza. I would never go there for a burger. I don't know if they offer burgers or not. So 
Um, there wasn't there a way in the book you you kind of describe the the different terms like it's like abstract, descriptive, and something else, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? That's right. So I gave examples a minute ago, but Apple is an abstract name uh, because it yeah. doesn't say computers. That it used to be Apple Computer, but even then we all knew it as Apple. Um, so that's a real word. It's a real everyday English word, but it's it has an abstract relationship to the underlying products and services. Whereas Pizza Hut is descriptive. It tells you it's a hut where you can, can get pizzas. <clears throat> there, there are a lot of names in between uh, where they sort of hint at what the company does or what the product is um, without coming right out and saying it. Um, trying to think of a, a good example off the top of my head here. Twitter is a nice example. I mean, Twitter, it's still hard to explain what it is. And, and when they launched it, it was even harder. Nobody had done or seen anything like Twitter before. And it's a real English word. It's, you know, bird song, but, uh, or, or it's just people kind of chattering. But that really is kind of an interesting description of what Twitter is. It's a bunch of people saying a lot of stuff that's sort of frivolous and, and meaningless usually. Um, so that's a suggestive name. It gives you a feel for what the company is or what the product is without describing it by calling it something like, you know, frequent status update website or something like that. Um, the other dimension that I talk about names on are, what types of words are they? So all the examples I've been giving are real words, whether it's Apple or Pizza Hut, but a lot of names also are completely made up. Dasani, Swiffer, Febreze, all of these are just made up words. Um, and then there's this other category or a couple other categories. One is real words smushed together. So Zipcar, Fitbit, and you create these compound names. And then of course, there are names that are acronyms or abbreviations, IBM, NASA, um, that are sort of harder to categorize. They, they sort of don't mean anything. If you can't remember or never knew what NASA stood for, then it's just a made up word. If you know exactly what it stands for, then it is a totally descriptive name to you because when you hear NASA, you think about uh, aeronautics and space. Um, so that's another category, but there are all these different kinds of names. And one of the things that a namer has to do or anyone coming up with a name is figure out which of those different types of names they want to explore and what might be the best fit for their company or product. Very interesting. Now, the other thing you, you talk about, I'm always a big fan of collaboration and especially doing collaboration wrong. And in my old age now, I've been through way more collaborations than I would ever want to admit that just sucked the life out of you that were horrible, <laughs> terrible. People weren't collaborating. People were manipulating. People were grandstanding. Not to get into politics, but it's like going to a congressional hearing where nobody asks a question and they're just giving their opinions for five minutes. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. So, um, <laughs> so I, 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 I've, I've been watching Congress on TV too. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> it's supposed to be an interview, but anyway, not supposed <laughs> to be a, a monologue. So, but. <laughs> When it comes to coming up with ideas, and I've actually had, I actually have had positive experiences with coming up with names. So, for example, uh, Vox Pop Me's Real Talk, the Customer Insights Show, that literally was a crowdsourced idea, right? Everybody in the company that wanted to submitted their ideas, and then that, believe it or not, is actually two ideas put together, and then. Mm -hmm. I think it was made plural because one idea was singular and then it just became real talk was one idea, the customer's inside show, maybe something like that. And that became singular or whatever. So yeah. in that case, it worked, but it wasn't a 92 step 
process. There wasn't everybody grandstanding and whatever. Uh, what have you seen work when companies want to get ideas, want to involve people, but also don't want to have that crappy experience from for everyone involved? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say that one of my worst naming experiences was a brainstorm at a branding agency I worked for, um, and it didn't even involve the client. It was all agency people, very smart and creative people, but just sort of got into a room and said, okay, here's what we're trying to name. Uh, here's a little bit of information about it. Now start saying, start yelling out ideas. And it uh, didn't go well. Uh, a lot of the ideas, you know, were were really expected and obvious. Um, and that, that's fine. That's how you always kind of start. But we didn't really get much further than that. Um, it's really hard to be put on the spot and think <clears throat> creatively like that, even if that's your, your job almost. Um, there's also a lot of, you mentioned politics, but there's, there's pressure, right? There, there are junior people in the room and senior people in the room and the junior people don't want to say anything dumb in front of the senior people. You know, they kind of are watching and waiting to hear what the more uh, important people say. And then, uh, you know, whether or not you feel like an idea is good can really be biased by who said it and, and, and things like that. So in my experience, a lot of the, the best name generation is done solo. And you can do that company-wide to, to your example, you can tell everyone, here's what we're coming up with. And then they can sit on their own and come up with name ideas. There's nothing wrong with getting together and sharing ideas, bouncing off, bouncing them off of each other. But that sort of, you know, packed in a, in a stuffy room and, and forced to spend an hour together and come up with 500 ideas, it, it often backfires. Crowdsourcing can work. Um, and, you know, almost any kind of, uh, creative process, there are examples of it having worked really well. Um, Accenture uh, was a crowdsource name. Now we can debate whether or not that's actually a good name, but it's certainly been a successful uh, brand. And that was a company-wide uh, crowdsourcing. I do think that the risks with crowdsourcing, uh, one of the big risks is that pretty much only one person, or in your case, two people can sort of win the crowdsourcing uh, initiative. And Everyone else, therefore, is, is potentially going to feel like they've been slighted or their idea has been ignored. Uh, or a lot of times the knee-jerk reaction, whether or not it's true, is why'd they choose that? My idea was so much better than that. Did, did they miss my idea? You know, did they, did they not see it? Should I email them again? And so um, it really just, it's not that it can't work, but it has to be handled very carefully. A lot of uh, clear communication about how this is going to work. Um, setting people up for, you know, only one name can be chosen in the end. And the good thing is it obviously can make everybody feel like they were involved, like they played a role. Um, but you want to make sure that people aren't disappointed at the end of it or upset. Um, you know, it, it can almost backfire in that effort to, uh, to involve everyone. So uh, there are just sort of two ways to think about it, and you have to be careful how you, how you do it. You have to be careful how you do it. Uh, and that's, I think, always the case. Hopefully, people wouldn't be slighted because their name isn't picked. But um, I did like your example of um, being creative. And when Adam Morgan was on the show, with he's with Adobe and an author, you know, he said, this is the worst thing that people can do. They put everybody in their stuffy room and expect you to collaborate, kind of similar to what you mentioned. You know, mm -hmm. think about it, step away, and then come back with your ideas. I don't know. I don't know why that's so difficult for some companies. And here's the thing. If I'm in a meeting with higher ranking people and they just talk and talk and talk, I probably won't interrupt them either, right? I'll just let them go. And I'm not, um, as I've said already, 
Um, I'm with my old age. I'm not necessarily a junior person uh, by anybody's um, definition of the term. So let's talk about the legal things you mentioned earlier. And um, yeah. I've actually seen cases where um, companies picked a name and somebody else already had the name and then they had to change it. First of all, nobody took the name anyways um, in, in the community. And then they had to change it again because somebody else already had the name in a similar field. Um, not exactly the same, but but close enough. Uh, apparently, they did actually um, find it in a trademark search or or whatever it was, um, and for some reason they moved forward. Maybe it wasn't communicated loudly enough, or maybe it wasn't heard. I don't I don't know. Uh, but how how do you go about making sure it's actually available? And 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 um, what do you recommend there? And what what step in the process is that necessary? Not just the final name, I assume. Right. Well, being sure, that word sure is sort of the operative term there, and, and it's uh, open to interpretation. And I think the, the key there is to leave that interpretation to the professionals, and in this case, that's uh, trademark attorneys, um, and, and to uh, find a good one, involve them in the process uh, at, the right, at the right stage, which I'll, I'll get to in a second, um, and then uh, trust them and try to have a good relationship with them where they're working with you. They're not just shooting down every idea, but they're trying to help you find the best idea. Um, and, you know, eventually that idea of sure is really the trademark attorney said we could use this and, and that we would have uh, success, that, that we weren't putting ourselves at, uh, at undue risk. Um, but of course, anyone can always sue you for anything. And, and you know, the, the, there's no such thing as a, a surefire uh, bet. The way to do this, though, is when you get to uh, a short list of names, and this may surprise uh, your viewers here, but a short list could be 100 ideas. Um, that's when you start putting them into what we call preliminary trademark screening. So before you go to a professional uh, trademark attorney, you want to do some quick checks, almost a knockout search. And you can look at uh, if you're in the U.S., you can look at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office's website. They have a free publicly available database called TESS. Um, I think it's the Trademark Electronic Search System or something like that. Um, you can also just Google names. Um, what you're looking for is uh, a company uh, or product that is identical or similar, and of course similar, also open to interpretation, that's using a name that is identical or similar. And I always tell people to put yourself in the shoes of that other company and think about whether if you saw somebody coming out with a name that was similar uh, for this product, would you be upset? Would you feel like, oh, they're going to confuse our customers or they're going to steal some of our business? And if so, that, that might be a sign that there's a, an issue there. And so you start just crossing off, crossing names off that list of, you know, somebody else is using this for something kind of similar. I just don't think we can do it. And you get that list of 100 down to 20 or 30. Um, and that's when you start considering those a lot more seriously. You whittle it down eventually to your top three, top five. That's when you engage the lawyers to say, okay, these names have gone through that preliminary trademark screen. We don't think there's anything obviously problematic about them, but we really need a deeper professional opinion. It might take them 72 hours to really dig into it and come back with their uh, opinion of the level of risk associated with each of those ideas. And that should inform your final decision. Very interesting. And then when you roll it out, uh, I know you talk about, um, you know, having a unified front and that kind of thing. And I think some of the examples um, that I was thinking about earlier, 
is uh, I think one company that shall remain nameless here. I don't think they had a unified front, unified story, so to speak. Of course, what that means is kind of debatable, right? I mean, we had a show a couple of years ago uh, when the Washington Redskins we were going to rebrand and then they became the Washington football team. And then, which personally, I don't think is a horrible name, except it doesn't work in the United States mm-hmm. because of algorithms on TV and whatnot. But um, and Washington Commanders, I don't think is a horrible name. Um, but the club could come out with a unified story, but it makes no difference because they're at such a level where everybody has an opinion, whether they they care about Washington Commanders or not. Right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. another thing to consider. Yeah. Anytime a new name comes out, especially a really high profile one like the Commanders, and especially a sports team where, you know, everyone, all the fans feel like they sort of own a little bit of of the history there. There's no way to win with that. Right. I mean, no matter what, half the people are going to hate it almost. And and I think, you know, hopefully for anything that you or your uh, listeners and viewers are naming, it's not going to be as emotionally fraught uh, as a an NFL team. And probably not as public either, but you can still learn a lot of lessons from it. Um, in that, no matter what you do, there are going to be people who they're going to be detractors, right? There are going to be people who uh, think it's terrible, or maybe not, you know, so strongly worded. Just like, eh, that 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 name, I could have come up with something better, or why'd you call it that? You know, that kind of reaction, and you just have to be ready for that. Um, Honestly, if, if the name doesn't get a reaction like that, you probably did something wrong. If it's so dry that it just flies under the radar, uh, then then you may have, have missed an opportunity to have a name that's more uh, attention grabbing. And anytime something grabs attention, some people will love it, some people will hate it. Um, when I said that you should launch with a unified front, I think as much as you can, uh, it's good to have your story ready when you push that name out into the world. Don't launch it on its own launch it, you know, in the case of the commanders, launch the uniforms and the logo and, and everything at once. And it shouldn't be all about the name. Uh, it should be the full package of whatever the brand is in, in your case. Um, because sometimes it, 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 that can just sort of, um, you know, people might get excited about the, the logo or the color scheme or something. And it, it just puts less attention directly on any one element like the name. Um, and then also, Make sure that employees at the company are told first and are ready to, to tell the same story about that name. Um, and if you can get other people uh, who are influential to come out on that same day and say, here's why I think this name makes a lot of sense, that can go a long way toward getting people to accept the name, even if their initial reaction is that it's a bit strange or off-putting. Um, if they hear someone who they respect uh, say that this name is great, um, that'll help. So the example I give in the book is Eric Schmidt, when Google uh, rebranded its corporate entity as Alphabet. That was a you know, strange choice, I think. Uh, a lot of people think it's great, but it certainly was a head scratcher probably for a lot of people on the day that they announced it. So their uh, former CEO tweeted at the almost exact moment that it was announced, this name is great, I love it, and here's why. And uh, that kind of sort of positive energy and, and momentum can really help a name succeed in those first days, which is really what you have to get over that hump of, uh, of the initial reaction. And then you'll start building a brand around that name in no time. I think it also depends on what the brand does, right? The Washington Commander, Commanders at the end of the day 
if they win the Super Bowl in the next couple of years, I bet nobody is going to be talking about whether or not they like the name, right? Yeah. They're going to love the Super Bowl win. So, you know, <laughs> exactly. it, it, it also depends on what they do. Uh, maybe in a, in a minute or 90 seconds here, um, tell us about the importance. We talked about the trademark and how about the importance of digital availability? So, for example, you know, I do have ChristophTrap.com, Christoph's Content Corner. Uh, we can debate whether that's a good name or not, but I, it's at least funny, I guess, in the corner <laughs> of the room. Um, but how important is it that the name is available, like for URL and, and other channels? Yeah, to, to, to put it briefly, I think the importance of the domain and the social media handles is more often than not overestimated. Uh, meaning that, of course, you want to get your exact.com. Of course, you want to own all the social media handles. We all know it's really, really hard and it's getting harder every day um, to buy the exact.com for whatever name you come up with. I mean, do an experiment and come up with a bunch of sort of wacky off the wall name ideas for something um, that you just think nobody has ever thought of this before. And then go see if the .com's available. And I can, you know, it's almost guaranteed that somebody's already taken it. So um, for that reason, uh, but also because I think the importance is declining as we all Google search things instead of trying to type in an exact domain, um, as we all get used to even big companies not owning their exact.com sometimes. If you can get the name plus a descriptor, um, so, you know, Washington Commanders football or, or something, putting that football word at the end, of course, I'm sure they have managed to own the uh the dot com because they have millions to spend on it um but if you can get your name with a descriptor that's often the best solution there are also other top level domains .co .io .ai whatever makes sense for your company um and so i would give yourself a little more leniency and flexibility on that front and focus on getting a great name that's legally available and that doesn't have linguistic challenges yeah interesting so i know of course you're also the principal and founder of a branding a brand strategy agency. Um, tell us about that. How do people reach out to you? Who should reach out to you uh, in the last 20 seconds here, if you can? Sure. So Heirloom is my agency. And speaking of dot-coms, it's at heirloomagency.com. Uh, I believe I also have heirloom.agency. So that's another example of how you can solve that domain challenge. So we're a brand consulting firm. We do brand strategy. Uh, we do brand architecture, naming, of course, um, as well as visual identity design and, and market research. So really full-service brand consultancy. Um, I work mostly with um, either fully funded startups all the way up to Fortune 500 companies on all kinds of uh, kind of hairy branding challenges or naming new products or companies or services. And uh, if that sounds like you and you have a branding challenge that you'd like to, to chat about, then please do reach out through the website or, or email me. Uh, I'd be happy to chat. Fantastic. Rob, thanks for joining us today. Great book. Everyone, please check it out. Available on Amazon. Thanks so much, Christoph. That's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Please rate and review our show on your favorite podcast channels. And don't forget to share this episode with your networks. We appreciate you. Until next time, let the best